very special guest with us. Kelly Dore is joining us from her home state of Colorado. She has an incredible resume that includes being a county commissioner, um, policy and legislative consultation to members of the U.S. Congress, work with both the Obama and Trump administrations, and she's also led two organizations in her field of expertise, human trafficking. The most important thing about Kelly Dore, though, is that she is a survivor, a survivor of the unthinkable, human trafficking. And before we go any further, if you're listening today with little ones in the room or where kids can hear, um, we want to warn you that some of the subject matter we'll discuss is really for mature audiences. So um, Kelly's experience has helped shed light on human trafficking, and her work is to put into it and to help victims. Kelly was the keynote speaker at this year's March for Life Chicago, which is where I heard her for the first time, and she shared how the human trafficking industry can be directly related to abortion. Kelly, we are so happy to have you with us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So um, as I said in your intro, you have a very long and impressive resume, and I'm afraid that I didn't do it justice. So why don't you share with our listeners a little bit more about what you've done and and your experience in this field? Thank you. Um, Yeah, you know, so it's a lot of times, you know, we join a movement or we jump into um, something that involves human rights, you know, sometimes by default, sometimes by things that, um, you know, that we are led to or we're called to or experiences that we've had. And, um, you know, for most survivors of human trafficking, um, well, first of all, there is, we have the federal definition, which is anything that is um, force, fraud, or coercion. Um, However, when it comes to minors, so, so children who are being trafficked, there doesn't necessarily have to be an exchange of money. And I think that that is a, one of the bigger nuances um, and, and really key pieces into helping to identify what's going on. And, um, you know, even for me, I didn't even recognize really um, even the charges that were in my case, um, which, which came about when I was 15, but this was pre-2000. So when we really, you know, if we really want to go back into the nitty gritty of it, it really wasn't until about 22 years ago that the United States of America actually had laws against human trafficking um, wow. and against slavery. And so, um, and that, that's you know, about, amazing. Yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of, when you think about, um, you know, we always say, um, and, and within human trafficking, there are different, you have sex trafficking, you have labor trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we always go back and, and really it, it comes down to on sex trafficking, prostituted people um, or people who are, are inside the sex trade, whether or not they're there by force, um, fraud or coercion. Um, you know, and, and we always hear, you know, it goes back as old as the Bible, right, that, that uh, you know, prostitution is the world's oldest profession. And mm-hmm. I really like to argue that, no, it's actually the world's oldest form of oppression Um, because we should not, when when we continue to use people for product, profit, or pleasure, um, we're really not recognizing or meeting them um, where they are as a a human being with basic human rights. And and so for me, um, you know, it, it really came about as As far as, you know, I I was elected, I knew that I was a child abuse survivor. I knew that there was incest. I knew that there were other men involved. Um, And that was actually part of my case. However, you know, as a child, I didn't, wasn't able to articulate everything that happened to me. Um, And I fully wasn't aware of all of the, the nuances within the TVPA Act or what human trafficking was 
until I was elected. And, and really late 2014, early 2015, I um, was working with a group of commissioners on understanding human trafficking within our counties, because mm-hmm. there are over, um, there's 3,076 counties in the U.S., two-thirds of them are rural, Um, and we really weren't figuring out how to address it, but we were also seeing a rise in arrests of prostituted people, Um, and that's where I started recognizing, well, there's a vulnerability here. Um, There's something that we're missing because really the root cause of exploitation and abuse is poverty and trauma, and so I really wanted to educate, especially law enforcement, Mm -hmm. uh, what they're seeing, because one of the things that I've always said is it's not that people don't want to see that it's happening. They don't know how to see it. Um, And so within that, within my own journey, um, and it turns out even to this day, I'm the only survivor who's been, who's held a public office. Um, um, And and again, like barring any, anybody who hasn't identified as a survivor or doesn't recognize their survivorship, um, but the only one who's publicly um, held office I started recognizing that we were creating policies that really weren't addressing the problem adequately um, because we didn't know what we were looking at. Um, Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the people who were geared and and supposed to be understanding what they were seeing didn't have the resources and the tools to. Um, And so for me, it was really recognizing how can I take the knowledge that I have of policy How can I take, um, and and really, when we create policy, policy, our our moral fabric and moral compass is rooted in the policy we create. Um, But I was recognizing that there was also good policy set forth that was actually inherently harmful um, Mm -hmm. to the people it was supposed to help. And so so for me from there, and then even within my own story, recognizing that, you know, at 15 years old, I still didn't fully, I wasn't able to articulate what was happening because I didn't understand the nuances of it. And looking back, when you look at my case of the charges that were against my biological father, um, the majority of them now would actually be defined as human trafficking. Um, and it was because of there, there was probably exchange, there was drugs present, there was an exchange. Oh, wow. um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I wasn't selling them and I wasn't forced to sell them back and forth. But again, when you have a minor who cannot consent and that minor is put into a situation by force, fraud, or coercion. So in my case, um, forced to do it, also fraudulently told to do it, you know, told that my family would be killed, that they would go after um, my other side of the family, that they would harm people in my family. Um, and then coercion, which was the silence around it. Like if you right. talk about this, you're going to tear apart the family. Um, and so really, those three elements when you're dealing with minors um, where it's not a black and white case of this is the definition of trafficking. Um, And I think that's why in the U.S. we have a really hard time seeing it. Um, And so from that, with with the policy work, I actually um, worked with another survivor. We worked with Shared Hope International and actually created the first guide to understanding familial trafficking. Because one of the things that we were recognizing was that nearly 90% of survivors um, who were adults and in the commercial industry um, or in the prostitution side had been sexually abused as a child at one point or another. Um, Wow. Yeah. Go ahead. I would would actually argue to say that that number is probably higher, but Mm -hmm. um, due to the underreporting of of what's going on, we don't have a lot of data um, surrounding that. And that's so unfortunate. And, you know, you talked about education and that's so important because um, it wasn't until, I mean, it's human trafficking is 
horrible and it's so outside the experience of so many people. And, you know, I was telling you before we got started today, I'm, you know, like Pollyanna, I, you know, never had anything like this in my life, but there are so many people out there who do, and there are things happening in our society that are just, that are unthinkable to a lot of people. So why don't, if you don't mind, if you could share a little bit of your story and, um, you know, when I first heard your story at the March for Life Chicago, it was, I just, I think my, myself and everybody else who was there, our hearts just went out to you because your story is, is just amazing and how you've overcome it is amazing. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, you know, so, so for me and, and, and really what I've really also learned within sharing our story is that we as survivors have to be in healthy positions and healthy places mm-hmm. to do that. Um, and that means that we are no longer living in that story over and over, but we're using it in a way um, to promote awareness, but also to um, just to, to promote the recognition of what's happening. And so, um, you know, for any survivors who are listening, one of the things I always caution you with is making sure that you are in control of the story you're telling. Um, you know, I've had a couple times in my life where my story was taken and then um, retold by other people or like snippets of my conversation were taken and put into different things. And so then that story didn't come out the way that I told it. Um, so one of the things I always try to do is tell the same, you know, share the same details because number one, um, I think, you know, by nature, we all know the horrificness um, of child um, sex abuse. And regardless of whether or not it's incest, um, it's by one person, by one family member, or by a multitude of people, um, regardless of if it happens once or, or multiple times. Um, and I think that, you know, as, an, as a society, we're so conditioned to, we want to hear the gruesome details. We want to know, um, and, and we, we sort of, it's like we, we feed off of that. And so for me, it's really about telling a story that is ethical, but also that, you know, gives, gives a picture of of what happened. And so, you know, in my case, I, you know, my earliest memories were around one years old of of being um, touched and abused by my biological father. I remember, um, and and he was also abused as well. Um, And I remember just the silence around it and the secrecy and the threats. Um, And then really until I, I was about three or four, I know it was before I was in kindergarten, um, where he had let taken me to places and let other people um, ha- touch me as well, and and um, and and really, you know, showing me magazines, showing me um, types of pornographies to almost groom me and show me what to do. And so, you know, when fast forward, and so I was abused between the ages of one until I was almost fourteen. But um, and and it was off and on because my biological father, um, they there was a divorce and he wasn't always around. Um, and so it, it wasn't where it was consistent across the board. Like there were times where I wouldn't see him for several months um, and then would see him and then there would be abuse again. And so, you know, I think one of the things we do in society is we try to minimize for people. Well, you know, it, it didn't happen that much or, um, you know, it only happened once or twice. So you need to get over it. And for me, it's really recognizing it's not about getting over it, but it's about how do we take those hard pieces and form it into the hard conversation so that we can educate what we need. Um, And as I said, you know, as a child, I thought what was happening to me was normal. I thought that every little girl did this. I was told every little girl did this. I was told that God made me to do this and that if it wasn't me, then somebody else would, would be hurt. And so I almost have almost like this sense of not really pride about it. 
but I guess like, okay, well, I'm taking this for other little girls. I'm protecting other little girls. And that's what I was conditioned to believe. Um, and then also conditioned to hide it. And so you learn to almost have a dual, dual life and you, you live this duality of you're always in fear. You know, your body is always, um, you're always trying to figure out and you're always hoping that somebody will notice, but you're also at the same time trying to hide it and, and minimize what's going on. And so, um, you know, really for me, it wasn't until I was, I was roughly, you know, 13, um, 14 in a health class in middle school, when we were talking about like rape and incest and the power of saying no. And, um, and really it was the incest part, because again, we didn't have human trafficking laws. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, what do you mean? My girlfriends aren't doing this or not all the girls are doing this. And so, um, you know, really started sharing with some friends I had shared with a couple teachers, um, and, and really things that were sort of inappropriate, you know, one of the things that kids will do when they're trying, um, and we know this across the board, like the majority of children who come forth with their abuse are not making things up. Um, something is going mm-hmm. on and, and, but it not all the time do mm-hmm. children know how to articulate it. And so they'll make up other stories. They'll exaggerate things because they're just hoping that somebody will take notice of them. Um, and somebody will ask them, okay, what's going on. Um, and also I think as adults in society, we look at that child as a problem child or that child's weird, or that child, um, isn't being cooperative, um, or isn't articulating exactly what we need to hear in order to help them. Um, within that, we have to recognize children don't know how to do that. Um, I, it took me mm-hmm. you know, until my forties and therapy to understand how to do that. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so for me, it was really when I told my story and, and finally things came out, um, the state came and charged my biological father. And when I first came out with my story, I didn't tell on him. I told on his friends because I was still protecting him. Um, I, you know, blood sometimes is still thicker than water. I was still afraid, you know, in the back of my mind, you love your dad. He's your dad. Well, Mm -hmm. you do anything because you want your parents to love you. You want your parents to value you. Um, And at the end of the day, like, I still wanted to please him. Like, I think I still felt in my mind that if I, if I did what I was supposed to do, I was protecting my family. I was protecting him. Um, My family wouldn't be torn apart. But when I really started realizing that um, is when actually I figured out that he was um, dating a woman who had two little girls and they were roughly five and seven. Oh, wow. Um, And she Mm -hmm. was going to marry him. And that's when I was like, I have to speak up and say something. And so I came back. You knew um, it could happen to them as well. Right. Yeah. And I had already shared what had happened with his acquaintances, but he denied it. Like it wasn't taken care of properly. So finally went back to, um, after I saw him again for the last time, um, that was over a Christmas break. Um, and he, he threatened to kill me. And he was like, I told you not to talk. Um, because I think he knew what the next step was. And that's when I realized he was also going to be around these other little girls. So came back, told a counselor what was happening. And then, um, he ended up getting arrested. Um, I mean, it's, what children have to go through the different types of, you know, people that come in and ask you questions that look for scars on your body, um, things that you have to remember. Um, it, we really have a system that is set up that it's really difficult for children to even trust a system coming forth. Um, but to even feel comfortable because I've always said to people, you know, my greatest fear, I I had grown up looking the devil in the eyes at times. Like I wasn't afraid of, of, I knew what he was capable of. I was more afraid of what society was going to do, what, what other people were going to do, how my, how my other side of the family was going to react. Um, mm-hmm. Because 
we don't know that. And all the things that you're told in your head um, and, and all the things that you're trying to cover up for now, you, you question your reality and you question who you are. And so, um, and I also think, you know, we bury stuff as children. And so as I've gotten older, you know, I've had more memories. I've had things. Um, there are timelines that match. There are timelines that don't. And so I think, you know, for me, it was really recognizing at the end of the day that my biological father, while the state, you know, brought charges against him, he pled guilty to 19. Um, he ended up going to jail for two months. He didn't have, wow. to, he didn't have to register as a sex offender, didn't have to pay um, restitution. And part of that was a plea deal that I at 15 was not included in. And so since then, I've been a very strong advocate. Like if I had the ability at 15 to, to or my testimony brought these charges, um, and, and he took a plea, so there wasn't a, a long trial. Um, it, but really, I should have been able to sit down and, and adequately be involved in, in what was going on. No, to absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so he abused you for, what, 13, 14 years or more, and he got two months. Right. And he had already done mm-hmm. some. He had already served um, some time, so I think he served eight months total. Um, yeah. And and really a lot of it was like the judge at the time wasn't fully understanding about this. I mean, Mm -hmm. even in the early 1990s, child sex abuse cases weren't really coming forward. Um, and Mm -hmm. we weren't adequately addressing them. We didn't have organizations to address that either. Uh, Well, thank goodness for the work that you're doing and, you know, helping survivors and helping people be able to advocate for themselves. So we are talking to Kelly Dorr. She is an expert in the field of human trafficking and has used her experience to do lots of great work for other people. Um, I'd like to mention that if you have any questions, comments, feedback, etc., please let us know. Just write to us at info at illinoisrighttolife.org. Again, that's info at illinoisrighttolife.org. We love your feedback. And also, if you have ideas for guests we might have in the future, we'd welcome that too. Again, write us at info at illinoisrighttolife.org. So it's our conversation with Kelly is particularly important today. Um, in just a couple of short weeks on June 1st, Illinois' repeal of parental notice of abortion is going to go into effect. And um, last year, we talked a lot about this. Um, uh, Illinois' parental notice of abortion law simply required an abortion provider to notify parents or other specified guardians 48 hours before a minor girl under 18 years old had an abortion. And this only makes sense. It, you know, the truth is the vast majority of parents love their daughters and want what's best for them. And um, at Illinois Right to Life and among other pro-life, pro-family groups in the state, our arguments were, you know, A, as I just said, parents love their daughters and deserve to be involved in their healthcare decisions, especially one so significant as abortion. Two, the vast majority of Illinois voters supported parental notice of abortion. Um, Polling done last March showed that 72% of Illinois voters supported parental notice, including 55% who identified as pro-choice. And then our third argument was that 
We know that human traffickers and other sexual predators often try to hide their crimes with abortion and that by repealing parental notice of abortion, we were opening the door for these predators to use abortion to cover their crimes. So, um, Kelly, I could, actually, I have about a million questions, but, you know, first of all, you, you spoke at the March for Life Chicago, so, you know, clearly you are pro-life, and so I guess my, my first question is, you know, how did your experience shape your pro-life beliefs, and then second, were we completely off base in saying that sexual predators do cover their crime with abortion? No, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always recognized is that we have to get involved in the policy sphere to um, not only to to really set, you know, morality within our with, within our society, um, but also to create boundaries in which um, we recognize inherent human rights and inherent dignity. Um, and, you know, and, and I struggle because for me, um, you know, being in this movement or even being elected, um, it's not a about being a Democrat or being a Republican. It's mm-hmm. about really recognizing people's basic human rights um, mm-hmm. and how those are harmed or how we're, you know, we're either helping or we're causing harm. Um, and, and when it comes um, to the, the abortion industry, um, and, and I'll get back to your first question in a second, but oh, no when it comes to the, to the abortion industry, you know, what we have seen over and over um, is that, you know, there are different ways to sort of skirt around um, really perpetuating abortion. And, and does that, I think the biggest question and the hard conversation we have to ask is, is this really for the good of the person that we're creating this law for, or is this for the good of an, an industry and an organization? Because is this about money? Um, and I think, you know, inherently in our society um, around the world, we base people's worth on, um, and, and we we base their dignity on what we think they're worth, um, or the the really the the role they have in society. And so, you know, we have seen predominantly across the board, um, you know, and, and you look at even, um, you know, one of the biggest abortion giants in our country, Planned Parenthood. Um, you know, one of the things they came out last was at 2020 and said they really wanted to recognize the inherent racist issues that they had and, and the founder um, and the beginnings of their organization. And you sort of heard a couple things about it and then it sort of died down and was quiet. Yeah, then it was gone. Um, and it just yeah, went away. And so, yeah. you know, and I think that there are so many organizations that do that. It's sort of like they want to hit the flavor of the month, um, sort right. of like with how human trafficking was during the last presidential election. Like everybody was talking about it. Everybody had a say in it um, and they wanted to do something. And then as soon soon as the elections were over, everybody sort of moved on to different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and recognizing that human trafficking does, you know, or the Super Bowl, for example, we hear about how big it is on the Super Bowl. We don't talk about it the other 300 and, um, you know, 64 days a year. Yeah, um, yeah but it's happening the other 364 days. And numbers. And so, um, and I think that we need to have this hard conversation with, with abortion. Um, you know, for me, I am a firm believer that, um, and, and some of it is my faith and some of it is, you know, my faith has really helped me to heal in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, pretend that that is happening for every survivor, but I've also had to seek it out to understand it. And so, um, and, and really recognize where there were times that my faith or certain figures of my faith played predominant roles in my healing, um, or even showed up at times in my life when I, didn't feel like anybody was around. And so, um, you know, so for me, it's, it's very, it's a deep personal experience that I had, 
But also I think the bottom line for me is again, it goes down to um, if we continue as a society to base people's worth on what we think that they, they can produce in society um, based on their skin color, their socioeconomic status, um, their belief system, their, their religious background, we are no better. I mean, we can't sit here and say that we inherently are serving their human rights and that we understand who they are. And I fully and wholeheartedly believe that had my biological father and even you know, the generational um, trauma that's happened um, on both sides of, of my family lineage, and I think a lot of people's family lineage, had they, my biological father inherently understood that he had value and he had worth and had not been in an abusive cycle himself, um, he probably wouldn't have perpetuated anger and abuse onto me. And so one Mm -hmm. of the things in my life that I've worked to do, and especially with my own children, is really put the hard work in to do the the mental and emotional work, Um, take responsibility for even choices and things that I've had to make in my life, regardless of if they were made during times of survival or made during times of duress, but really recognizing how do we break the chains and, and the cycles of generational trauma and generational abuse. And really it comes down to understanding our own inherent value. And so for me, it's not about abortion as as a siloed issue. Mm -hmm. It's about respecting life across the board, whether or not it's from conception to death, because we cannot pretend to say that at at one certain point of a human lifespan, um, that that person is more valuable than, than they are in other areas. And so I think that is disingenuous to us as a whole, and especially um, to women. I do a lot of work um, within the violence against women community. And I'm one of the only, um, you know, again, like pro-life speakers in that. And and sometimes that means we have to show up and have these conversations (laughs) in hard spaces. Um, But I also think, you know, that means we've got to go to organizations that predominantly say that they are women friendly or that they are, you know, helping reproductive rights. And have those conversations, because one of the things we were seeing is that across the board, the majority of survivors who are sexually abused as youth, whether or not it was by a family member or by um, somebody who was non-family, so like another trafficker or pimp, they were not related to, um, so on the commercial side or something like that, they were taken to abortion clinics because of the the type of secrecy that's there. And and because Mm -hmm. sometimes a lot of the rules, um, including like HIPAA, is sort of bastardized and changed and and really used to say, well, we're protecting that person. Um, We know across the board that most survivors are inherently led to believe that nobody is there to help them. Nobody cares. And so when they get taken to a, a place like Planned Parenthood, they don't get asked their name. They don't get asked for identification. They don't get separated from the trafficker or the family member who's brought them there. Um, Mm -hmm. They're not asked some of these questions. um, And then the uh, the procedure is is performed or like they treat this, um, the STD or any of the other stuff issues that they have. When the procedure is performed, we release them back to the hands of their trafficker. And so they're Mm -hmm. like, what message are we sending them? And that message is basically, you don't matter to us. And so I think, you know, even our nation's abortion clinics as medical providers have the duty to separate, identify, and and really recognize the signs of of what's happening in front of them. Um, Because I do know, like, I've, I've got colleagues and friends that have worked inside abortion clinics, and they are told look the other way. Don't ask these questions. Um, we inherently, 
Um, and it's not just to cover up the abortion. It really, it comes down to, for them, it's making the quotas that they need to make for the day. So it's about money. So again, yep. we are placing a value on a human being. No, exactly. And, you know, I was thinking about this when you were talking in the last segment that, you know, it comes down to worth and value. And, you know, I've been doing pro-life work for, gosh, a really long time now, over 35 years. And, you know, throughout my career, whenever you talk about the abortion industry and the atrocities and the outrages and the just unthinkable things they do, it always comes down to money. It's always about the bottom line. And, you know, they don't care about women's health. They certainly don't care about the life of the baby. And, you know, it's just get them in, get the abortion sold to them and get them on their way. So, um, so do you, I, one thing that we heard from other, um, victims rights advocates in the human traffic industry was that a lot of of girls and women who were involved in human trafficking in one way or another did have a were coerced or forced into an abortion by their abusers um would you say that that's true in your experience or do you have like a ballpark number that you could give of, of women who've experienced this or do you do we just not really know well, you know, so one of the things within the human trafficking movement, um, and, and it's actually even within policy in the U.S., is we are a country that we are very reactionary. So we mm-hmm. wait until things happen, and then we're like, oh, we need to create that law. We need to protect, now we need to protect this group of people, um, or we need to put money into resources. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that we see, especially in Europe, that like Europe does a good job of, is they actually do the research first. They collect the data and then they create the policy. Um, and Go figure. They, they fund what a concept. Research. Right. And so, you know, and, and really it's because inherently reaction is, is a lot cheaper than preventionary mm-hmm. measures. Um, but I would argue, you know, when you take away and you add the long-term systematic um, psychological, mental, and emotional harm that comes um, with being reactionary and not preventative, it's actually, um, it costs us more in the long run. Um, and, and, and so we need to start changing some of our policies and the way we look at things in the U S because, um, and especially within the human trafficking movement, data is scarce. And so there are organizations coming forth, um, that are purely data and research organizations, um, but nobody wants to fund them because everybody Mm -hmm. wants to fund the group homes and say that they're, you know, that they're saving a child. They don't want to fund the long-term stuff because that's not the feel good stuff. Um, and so, you know, know, we, we experienced that a lot here at Illinois, right? right, Right. You know, people are, yeah, like they want to fund, um, and, 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 but what they don't again, understand is that it's always putting us in a defensive, um, category where we're having to react all the time. And so, um, you know, I, I think one of the, the, when we are looking at, um, it, it, so data, some of the data that we have um, that I have actually back from to 2017 is the latest round of data. One of the hardest areas and one of the places that no in the anti-trafficking movement, nobody wants to touch because they're so afraid of being attacked or being labeled as anti-woman or anti-choice um, is the numbers that are happening within abortion clinics. So hmm. uh, my organization in 2017 sort of did like an informal, we asked a bunch of questions a- across the board, but one of the sections we asked where we were actually astounded was that we sent surveys to 1100 um, survivors of like of sexual abuse, of, of exploitation, whether or not it was, um, they were, they considered themselves as a trafficking victim or not. Um, but again, we recognize that even within exploitation, 
Um, sometimes there doesn't have to be a pent because poverty can be the pent and poverty mm-hmm. can be what drives um, when, again, there, you don't have the options, then there's no choice. And right. so really um, what we found was of that about 85% or I'm sorry, 87% of women came forth and said that they had had one or more abortions at the same facility when they were minors. And so we, we classified minor up to the age of 19 because we sort of mm-hmm. wanted, we wanted to see, because we, we also have to recognize too, that it's trauma is not black and white, which means that mm-hmm. we have to understand there is a biological age of somebody and a linear age and an emotional age. Right. Um, and when we go back to somebody's trauma, somebody who's 18 may be operating from a trauma perspective of a six-year-old. And Mm -hmm. so they're not going to all of a sudden, because they've turned 18, make adult decisions um, or be grown up now. That doesn't work that way. Um, But we tend to do that with our policies. And we tend to do that Mm -hmm. as a society when we are addressing issues. Um, So we, so with that, we asked up to 19, um, Mm -hmm. nearly 86% had said, yeah, they'd had more than one abortion taken to the same facility as a minor taken in by a trafficker or somebody who was in, um, in guardianship of them, not of their free will, um, but really somebody who was there to sort of watch out over them. Um, no questions asked, no names asked, even though they had multiple um, STIs, even though they had multiple bruises, marks on their body, um, and then at the same time forced into um, an abortion and then sent back to the, with the trafficker but also given a bunch of prophylactics and basically scolded and said, no, don't get pregnant again. And so um, if we're not recognizing, I mean, inherently when a minor is brought in, there should be red flags all over the place. And and I'm not talking about a 17 year old minor who's with a 19 year old boyfriend. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about a 12, 13, 14 year old minor who is with somebody who clearly is an adult um, and may or may not be related to them because even someone who's 12, 13 or 14 Um, unless it is a cultural issue or an arranged marriage, which still are not legal in the United States, right. Right. Cannot consent to be in a sexual relationship. And so, um, and so those are some, like, those are basic questions that we need to ask in order to identify. The other thing that we need to recognize is that most survivors in those situations are not going to openly admit their survivors or even recognize their exploitation at the time. So even though they may come through, again, this is why we've got to, to be properly trained, because even though they may come through, they may not self-identify. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've got to look at all the other factors that are surrounding them in their situation. Um, but, but clearly, one thing that we have to recognize across the board is that somebody coming in from multiple services, whether or not it's an STD, STI, or abortion, is probably in a, an exploitive situation or in a traumatic situation that we've got to figure out how do we adequately address. So great, well, great and shocking information. We are really excited to announce that we have yet another stop on our Ground Zero tour. This one will be Monday, June 6th at 6 p.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in lovely Huntley, Illinois. That's up in McHenry County. Join us to learn more about what the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Decision will mean for Illinois and what you can do to help us win Illinois for life. Again, that's the Ground Zero tour on Monday, July 6th at 6 p.m at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Huntley in McHenry County. We hope to see you there. 
We're talking to Kelly Dore. She is um, an advocate for victims of human trafficking, has done a great deal of policy work, just incredible work, um, both on the local and national level to help victims of human trafficking. And this conversation is particularly important because in just a few short weeks on June 1st, um, Illinois' parental notice of abortion law will be officially revoked. It will be no more. Um, and minor girls, girls under 18, will be able to have abortions without their parents' knowledge. And um, during the debate over parental notice of abortion last year, um, abortion advocates claimed that those of us who were claiming this law would be an aid to human traffickers and sexual predators. They claimed that we were engaging in hyperbole, that we were using scare tactics, that, that what we were saying just wasn't true. And um, we, we heard from people like uh, Brooke Bellow and Renee Polino, who said, yes, women are forced to have abortions and human trafficking. And we heard today from Kelly, I mean, the number is over 85%, you know, 86, close to 87% of the women that her organization surveyed said, yes, they had had one or more abortions at the behest of their trafficker. So this is absolutely happening. And people not only here in Illinois, but in our neighboring states and beyond, parents need to be aware that Illinois is posing an incredible threat to their to their little girls, basically. So, um, um, yeah, I thought of a question that I really wanted to ask you um, while you were talking just a second ago. One of the things that I found most disturbing um, on the night that the parental notice of abortion law was repealed um, during the floor debate on in the um, Illinois House, uh, Kelly Cassidy, who's one of the most pro-abortion members of our House of Representatives, basically alluded to the fact that she had endured abuse as a child and that repealing parental notice was necessary to protect these girls who were in abusive situations. And I mean, I found that tragic because it seemed to me that she was using her horrible history of abuse as an excuse to, in fact, not help girls, but heap more abuse upon them and perpetuate the cycle of abuse. I mean, how how would you respond to that? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Right, right. You know, and, and first of all, I think we, so we know across the board inherently that and especially in the United States, um, at least one in three women has been subject to some sort of sexual violence or abuse mm-hmm. against them. Um, so, and, and honestly, that that number could be higher too, because we have to recognize, um, you know, we've got cultures where um, within the United States who don't see child sex abuse or abuse on girls as abusive. And so even though, you know, like mom or grandma has had it happen to them, they don't necessarily know how to address it or stop it mm-hmm. because it, it's sort of like this generational thing. And so it's almost seen as like a rite of passage. Um, this is where our culture needs to sort of step back and, and really recognize the inherent harms that we're doing. And, um, you know, and, and while I'm never, ever going to say Um, Or And I don't believe we should ever trauma compare. I don't believe we should ever, um, and and really even interject our own trauma and into something, um, you know, like, so when I share stories of of what happened to me and why I want to change laws, 
I don't say, you know, we have to have this because it happened to me, because I think that's very siloed and, and it's very much um, disingenuous to re- the representation of all of the women around. Um, so while, I mean, it's abuse is abuse is abuse and it's horrific, no matter what happens. Um, I think we also have to be very ca- cautious and careful because um, really along this debate, I think we've really forgotten the humanity side of it, which is really the victims um, who are involved. And then also recognizing the responsibility that our culture and society has. Um, You know, when we talk about parents, um, you know, having parental notification, I mean, as a mother of, of four, I absolutely want to know how to support my children and protect them. Um, But my family, even with my husband, like we have a very safe and healthy understanding of how do, how do we have a relationship as a family? We, um, you know, we, we continually work on that. Um, My children, um, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, they know that my husband and I are safe people to come to. Um, They know that as parents, we don't overreact when something happens. We recognize things happen. Um, And so, but not every family is like that. And so I think we also have to recognize within some of these families um, that there is coercion, control, and abuse that happens. And, and, but, but we cannot say that that's across the board, everybody. Just like we cannot say that every, um, every girl is completely capable of going through our, uh, something horrific as an abortion. And let's be honest, like it is a horrific procedure. And mm-hmm. if you ever yes. had to go through it, it haunts you for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter if you justified it or not, um, or if you felt like that was the right thing at the time. You always, always, um, one of the things we don't do with abortion um, survivors is really, or, or um, women who've had to have abortions is we don't offer them long-term care. We don't no, offer exactly. them no. long-term counseling because if we did that, then the numbers abortion would drastically um, would go down. We would see those numbers. Well, yeah. And abortion advocates would have to admit, Hey, this is a bad thing. This is traumatizing. It's not good. Uh Absolutely. And so I think, you know, part of the problem with both sides of this movement is that we're not willing to have those conversations and recognize where are, you know, where are we putting our preconceived notions and sometimes like either whether or not it's our faith or whether or not it's um, you know, it's our personal beliefs or our politics before that really the genuine good of, of the, the girl that's there, um, you know, for the most part, the majority of girls that are going in, they have stable families um, that, well, that, and, and a lot of times it's, they're just afraid, right? Like these, these right. children are so afraid. And so I would argue, and really I, I advocate to parents and I, and I really try to, to get parents to understand, like create the best thing you can do for your kids is to have a safe environment for them. And mm-hmm. where they feel like they can come to you and you're not going to blow up on them, you're not going to react. Because if we continue to do that, all we're showing our children is that we're not safe. And so what do they do? They have to go to a, a vow of secrecy, really, and they have to, mm-hmm. they have to hide things from us. Um, and so parents who understand that, recognize that, you know, and at the end of the day, if our daughters are going in and having abortions and they're not telling us, we don't know at the end of the day what to look for if they have a reaction to the procedure, if they're bleeding out. Um, and mm-hmm. we've seen this across, like we know abortion inherently across the board is not always safe for every, it's not a hundred percent safe for everybody. Um, not every girl comes out of it and is not sterile after that. Not every girl doesn't have prepara- preparations or, or certain things. And so Um, We have to treat this like and really recognize, um, you know, across the board that there has to be precautions and there has to be safety measures. Um, And I think that when we 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 remove parental notifications or even remove 
the the ability for the girl to have somebody to talk to if she doesn't right. feel yeah, and that was have an that adult. was a big part of our, right. our law was that there was a judicial case. bypass right yeah. or like a teacher or somebody to at least say let's talk about this um if nobody knows what's going on i i would argue that we are setting up where if if that child comes home and they're afraid to tell their parents what happened and they're ashamed to tell them we might as parents, we could find them dead at some point in the, the right. next. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, again, like it's not just black and white, like neither, neither side is black and white. And I think that's part of the issue too, with victims, because, and it's part of the continued secrecy and silence that victims have is the shame behind it. Because if truly, if, if every woman believed that abortion was such a good thing, women would be talking. I mean, you have like your activists, right. That scream and say they're proud of doing it. Um, yeah. They shout your abortion crowd. Right. But for the most part, most women inherently, it's a shameful and awful procedure to have to go mm-hmm. through and they don't want to have to repeat it. They don't want to have to talk about it. And so that tells me right there that we as a culture and we as a society recognize this isn't just um, because it's not like having an appendix removed. Like this is no, definitely not. This, this is a procedure that has long-term lasting physical, emotional, and mental effects. And so until we're willing to put things in place to fully support that girl, whether or not it's her family who's involved, because we do know that a lot of these children are taken in because of family members and the family's mm-hmm. not safe. Um, but if we're not willing to figure out what brought that child there or really make sure that they feel safe and, and can articulate why they're there in a safe way, we don't know who's safe for them or who's not. And we don't know what we're sending them back to. And so I would argue, again, on the larger scale, this is where some of our policies and narratives need to change around on-demand abortion and, um, and and that it's safe for every woman because it's not. And, and we know that. We've seen that across the board. Um, if it truly was, we wouldn't have abortion doctors like we had years ago with Kermit Gosnell in Pennsylvania. We wouldn't mm-hmm. have clinics running like that. It would be you know safe, legal, and rare across the United States. And we know it's not. And so- No, absolutely not. Well, yeah, here, uh, because of our crazy liberal abortion laws in Illinois, Nail salons and tanning salons are more tightly regulated than abortion clinics. It's crazy. So, um, well, one final thing, Um, you know, we have parental notice going away in just a couple of weeks. And um, I mean, basically all this is going to do, you know, as you've alluded to is, you know, allow walls to go up between parents and their children and, um, it's just removes removes a layer of a layer of safety that might have been there for girls who are who are being abused or trafficked or or in other bad situations. If you are a parent and you're concerned about your daughter, what are some signs that they can look out for that they might want to what are things that parents should be aware of? What should parents look out for if they think that something might be going on with, with one of their kids? Um Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the biggest things that, that we're seeing here in the United States is the, um, the access that predators have towards kids. Um, and right now, access is so much easier than it was. And, and this is because, and even 20 years ago, this is because of the age of the internet. This is social media. Um, this is the, our phones that, that even, you know, kids as young as nine and 10 years old have access to. Um, and so really, if, if it's not a familial situation, and so 
um, you know, in, in suburban areas and, and across the board, um, whether, you know, barring children who are in foster care, we know that foster care is one of the pipelines that leads to children being trafficked and abused. Um, and it's because of, of the brokenness that they're coming from, but also um, the addiction, the unhealthy um, patterns and behaviors that they have grown up with in their families. Um, and so a foster child who is removed from the home is um, more likely to be uh, talked to or addressed by a trafficker within 72 hours of being removed wow. from the home. And so, you know, those and, and those kids end up going into the commercial side of things more um, or even like having a boyfriend who ends up becoming a pimp or something like that, because their sense of safety and their sense of love is skewed. Um, but for families who are in healthy situations and even within our um, our suburban areas and, and really um, our wealthier areas, um, it's going to be the childhood sex abuse that's happening within the home or within somebody mm -hmm. who has access to that child. So we really as families have to be able to recognize and have those hard, hard conversations about what's going on in our families, um, what we allow, what we ignore. Um, for the most part, in 99% of the time, childhood sex abuse is ignored because the family is completely avoidant of even addressing it or even wanting to recognize it. Um, for the most part, we want to just put it under the rug and we want to just pretend like it doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, so parents really have to be vigilant, but also recognize unhealthy patterns within our families and what patterns that we've learned as parents um, to either want to be friends with our children or to be almost so protective of them that we're controlling of them. And now it's leading to secrecy with our kids. Um, and so I would say, you know, for parents, the greatest thing is, is understanding how to have those hard conversations and, and building up trusting relationships with your kids. If your kids don't feel like they can come to you or talk with you, they're never going to share with you anything um, that's happening to them because they also know how you're going to react. And so um, if you're a parent who's grown up in an abusive household yourself or, in, or who's had trauma, get help with your trauma, because if mm -hmm. you don't, you are going to perpetuate um, and you are going to, to push your trauma onto your children. Um, so those are some, some big things, but also recognize as parents, we're not our kids' friends. We are parents. So we have a right mm -hmm. to look at their social media. We have a right to set boundaries with them mm -hmm. um, and to have those conversations. But if we as parents can't even have a basic conversation about, about teenage sex with our kids, we're never going to be able to have a conversation right. about what they're doing with their friends, who they're talking to, stuff like that. Um, and, and also removing, it's a scary thing, but remove the scare tactics. Most children in the United States are not kidnapped in white vans, are not lured by puppies um, or the offer of candy. The majority of children in the United States who are being sexually abused um, and groomed to be trafficked, the chances are the child and the family knows that predator. Wow, that's, huh, this has been, well, horrifying, yet at the same time, really informative. I think this is information that, I mean, I've learned a ton, and I'm sure that everybody listening today has as well, and this is information that everybody needs to know. So, um, again, we've been talking with Kelly Dorr, uh, a human trafficking survivor and advocate for those um, who have had to endure this as well. So Kelly, thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate it so, so much. Um, any final thoughts for our listeners today? Now, you know, just thank you so much for having me and, and, and really just bringing awareness to this, this topic. But, 
you know, also just to the parents out there, um, you know, really it comes down to having a good relationship with our children, but also as a society and, and as a culture, you know, we, we are charged with, with really supporting each other within communities and really helping um, the next generations of children. Because if we, if we really, uh, we need, and again, it means coming in and recognizing human dignity from conception all the way to death and providing for programs that walk long-term. And so that women who, um, who really don't feel like they have any other choices, but abortion can say, you know what, I do have other choices. Um, and the community and society isn't going to judge me. They're not going to shame me. And they're mm-hmm. going to walk with me as long as it takes. Because I think one of the greatest errors that we do as, as a movement, and even in the pro-life movement is we say, we're going to help you have that baby. And then we're sort of done with them. Um, or we don't fully want to recognize or understand where that woman's been. And so if you are even um, an advocate who works at a clinic or who's reaching out to a woman who's thinking about having an abortion, meet her where she is recognize that, that, you know, we may not know where she's come from. We may not know the shoes that she's walked in. And so how do we meet her empathetically and with compassion, but also to show her um, the true love of, of, and really the dignity for who she is. That's how we start changing the culture. And that's how we start changing the world and really recognizing that women's rights are really about about giving women the right to live and to prosper um, and to become mothers should they choose down the road in a healthy way as well. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. Um, You have been listening to Live Chat, the official podcast of Illinois Right to Life. I'm Amy Gerke, Executive Director of IRL, and I hope you will join us again in two weeks when we have another great guest. Thanks so much for listening.